here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another podcast episode. You may have seen on Twitter that our last episode was actually our 50th episode, which shows you how unsentimental I am that I didn't even notice that until Buzzsprout told us it was our 50th. So that was very exciting to celebrate. And thanks to all of you for being such amazing, wonderful, supportive listeners that allow us to keep doing this week after week, this thing that we enjoy so much. So thank you for that amazing support. And also a huge thank you to Carly and Cece who've 
come on as co-hosts and who've been so spectacular and who've made this process so much more fun for me because doing it by myself was pretty damn boring and they they make it so much more fun. So thank you to Carly and Cece for that as well. So without further ado, let's dive into today's Books with Hook segment. Carly, why don't you start us off? Dear Cecilia Lira, your podcast with Purva Miller's Women in Our Town on Power, Privilege, and Hashtag Me Too resonated with me so much. Similar to your own book, The Faithfuls, my debut novel, We Close Our Eyes, 88,000 Words, highlights the power imbalance between men and women and the justifications many use when faced with a moral dilemma. This steamy contemporary women's fiction is a standalone novel with potential for a series. Like Casey and Writers and Lovers, Emily is trying to find her way in life while stumbling through various relationships. It would sit nicely on the shelf next to Kristen Rockaway's She's Faking It and Lisa Lasacasio's Open Me. Emily Bissett is used to being hit on by men. As a college dropout turned bartender in downtown Denver, she counts on their generous tips to pay her bills while she figures out a real career. When Emily's boss sends her to a personal development seminar to help her find some direction in life, the provocative leader encourages Emily to be authentic and embrace her sensuality to become a powerful woman. Immersed in the slick and often hypercritical world of self-help, Emily proceeds down a path of temptation and lust, navigating the men who claim to want to empower her while she encounters the double standard that exists for women. However, when her impulsive desires lead to devastating consequences, she risks losing an exciting new career, close friendships, and the one man whose love caught her by surprise. As a Gen Xer, I'm passionate about eliminating the double standards regarding women and sensuality, and I've written a handful of articles about the topic on medium.com. I hold a professional membership with the Authors Guild. Thank you for your consideration. Sincerely, Justine Brashear. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Cece, why don't you let us know your thoughts on that query letter? This is such a nice shout out to Women in Our Town. I encourage listeners to go to womeninourtown.com. It's a lovely space for women to heal through storytelling. I'm a fan. I'm also very much a fan of the podcast. All right. So... I enjoyed the opening paragraph, obviously. The second paragraph, I think, needs work. So we know that Emily is used to being hit on by men, right? And then we know we know that she goes on a personal development seminar to help find direction in her life. So I'm guessing that's probably like the inciting incident. And then all I hear in terms of like plot points sounded a bit vague. So Emily proceeds down a path of temptation and lust. I don't quite know what that means, like exactly. A path of temptation and lust could be really anything. I can think of a million ideas and they're all like in in different levels of seriousness, I guess. As well, when her impulsive desires lead to devastating consequences. Again, I'm unclear on what that means. What, What were the desires? How were they impulsive? What were the consequences? And then there's a line that says she risks losing an exciting new career. And I had known there was a new career until until that line. Does this mean that when she goes on the seminar, she becomes like a life coach or something? And also, is there something, I don't know, sinister about the seminar? Or is it or is it just that it leads her down a, a, a specific path? And what are the obstacles she encounters? I very much enjoy stories that take place in like the self-help world, but then it turns out that there's more behind that. I think that's could be a really interesting hook. I'm just unclear on what exactly happens to Emily. What obstacles are she facing? What is at stake? These are questions that I feel like this 
paragraph should be answering. Also, and I could be wrong about this, but I think that on the first paragraph, you mentioned Casey in Writers and Lovers because you know that we are obsessed with Writers and Lovers. Because I don't get the vibe, the tonal Writers and Lovers vibe here at all. And if I'm wrong, I'm sorry. I love how we're always hoping things are more dodgy and scary and nefarious than what they come across. We're always like, oh, I'm hoping it's going to be more sinister. I think that means there's something wrong with the three of us. But anyway, Carly, what were your thoughts? I definitely agree here. I really liked the opening paragraph. It highlights the power and balance between men and women and the justifications many uh, many use when faced with a moral dilemma. So we know like there's a vagueness happening here that's kind of setting us up. And then the comps were, I know um, Cece just addressed the writers and lovers, but the she's faking it and open me. Those are two, I just looked them up because I wasn't familiar with them, but she's faking it is very commercial and open me is very literary. So these feel like very different comps. And sometimes when we're talking about comps that are really far apart, what you're saying is like, I'm in the middle between these comps. Um, but you're saying would sit on the shelf nicely next to, well, those two books aren't beside each other at all, right? So which book is your beside or is it X meets Y or this meets that or for fans of blank? Well, I think you could probably just massage that wording um, a teensy bit there. But yes, in the next paragraph, we're talking about everything that's happening, right? And it feels very vague. I agree with Cece. I would love a bit more pointed language here because listlessness is very passive, right? So she's saying, you know, she doesn't know where she's going in life and it is a common coming of age trope. Obviously we have to start somewhere in order to kind of climb to another direction or move and evolve. But I think we just need to figure out with the more pointed language, what exactly is evolving. And I think Cece hit on some of the key points there, you know, and there's also this line that says her impulsive desires lead to devastating consequences. Firstly, I don't know what the impulsive desires are. It sounds like it might be the the sensuality or sexuality or lust stuff that's happening, which is great, but it's still pretty vague and devastating consequences. What are the consequences? Because we don't really know what's at stake here. Whenever we're talking about coming of age or an evolving situation for a character, we have to know why does it matter that they evolve? What is at stake for not evolving? Or what are the consequences to evolving? So there's just like a little bit more we need to know here. And I know a lot of authors feel like they don't know when to be vague and when to be, you know, when to be on the nose and and they're trying to hook us and they don't want to give away the ending. But this is an example of we need to know more. Great. Thanks, Carly. Okay, Cece, what did you think of the actual pages? So for the listener, we have the staring at words written with perfect penmanship. The words say a choice is an act of personal power. She is arrived at a cell seminar. She doesn't want to be there. And yeah, and we go through through that scene. I was curious on the first page to find out what was pressuring her to stay. Comments in italics, things like she's talking about her boss. Her boss is insanely hot. And she says things like, damn, like he just stepped out of a photo shoot for GQ magazine. Um, On the next page, there's a, oh, this is not how I want the weekend. This is all in italics. I don't think we need any of those italics personally, because the narration is already telling us all the information that's conveyed in italics. This is told in third person. Italics are obviously in first person, which is exactly how you're supposed to do it if you're going to do it. But I think either remove the information from the narration or from the italics. Personally, I would just cut the italics because it's just a lot of repetition. I already knew that she didn't want to spend her weekend there when she mentioned, oh, this is not how I want to spend my weekend. And repetition is is your enemy, and especially in the first five pages. We find out that the reason why she came is because Enzo, her boss, gave her $300 to come. He and his wife took the seminar. They love it. And she was like, well, I don't think I can go. And he's like, here's $300 to do it. 
because she was saying that she had to work on the weekend to make extra money. And he sort of like removed that problem, right? Like if you can't come because of money, here's money. And I kind of wanted, like when we find out about the $300, I kind of wanted to know, like, is this typical? Is he, does he typically use money to win arguments? Does he throw money around a lot? It's such a strange, strange might be the wrong word, but it is an unusual thing. So, you know, whenever a character telling me about something unusual that happened, like your boss giving you money to attend a seminar, I want to know whether that's a typical behavior for your boss or not, because that tells me about the protagonist and tells me about the supporting character. There's also a line where she says it was a diverse group made up of different ages, races, and genders from soccer moms to big burly men with face tattoos, kids who looked barely out of high school and people who must have been upward 70 plus years old. It's not that it's a bad line, but it reads more like an article, right? Like you're giving us a summary of who was there. I would prefer to see like three or four sharp visuals of various people there and reach the conclusion that it was diverse myself, as opposed to like reading it more like in an article sort of way. So those are like my my line notes. My big picture note is this. When I reached the end of this, what is the reader curious about? Am I curious about what Emily's going to learn in the seminar? Not really, since it seems like the garden variety self-help stuff. If there's something or sinister about this, um, no clues were dropped. And there's a good place to add a clue, by the way, which is the place where Emily's thinking about how Enzo's wife, I think her name is Isabella, mentioned the seminar and how it changed their life. Like maybe Enzo and Isabella have been acting differently since going to the seminar. And am I curious about Emily is there? Not really, because her boss paid her to be there. I don't know what else there is to be curious about. I think that that one of the ways to add curiosity is to add imbalance, tensions, and stakes. And if the query letter had given me an indication of the specificity in the central conflict, but I was like, ooh, is it sinister? Is it a sinister self-help group? So I don't know what what else is here. And I think there probably is a lot more going on, but I think it has to find its way to the first five pages so that by the time I finish the first five pages, I go, oh my gosh, I have to keep on reading because I have to find out if and then fill in the blanks. Yeah, 100%. Cece, thank you. Kali, what did you think? I definitely agree. I wanted to know what was sinister about this. Like, I I had very, like, Nexium vibes when they were talking about, like, limitless beliefs. That was part of that whole Nexium cult thing. So this really reminded me of that. And also the reference, twice they referenced, like, the Stepford volunteers. And the whole Stepford wives thing is very out there, right? So it, that really isn't what you imagine it to be. So there's a lot of references to things are not as they seem, which is great. But we're not actually seeing anything like that actually on the page, which is a little bit problematic. And the other thing I think is also a lot of stuff is happening to like around her and there's not a lot of stuff that's happening with her because she talks about in I think it's the maybe like fourth paragraph on the first page. Emily was not up for this. Her head was pounding from another late night of tequila and clubbing. And then she got a Starbucks on the way in and she said her best friend would be so disappointed in her contribution to the corporate giant rather than supporting an indie coffee house. And I thought, why would you say what the best friend thinks of you? Why wouldn't you talk about how you feel about that? It just felt like a lot of stuff happening around her and we're not actually getting to know her. And even in the first section when she wants to walk into the building and they say, you can't bring this $5 coffee in here. Why did she turn around then? Like there's just so many opportunities for her to turn around and we don't really get until, you know, three or four pages in that really the final block is that Enzo is the one who's handling the refunds and that's why she doesn't leave. So anyway, I think that the scene is too long. I think all of this can be accomplished a lot faster. 
and we don't need it to be this this long at all. And I definitely want to know what is sinister about this. I like that she's like got this potentially lustful or romantic interest in Enzo. I think that's interesting because in the query letter, they're talking about the sensuality and becoming a powerful woman and all of this this stuff. Like I'm, I want to know, like this almost seems to me there's going to be some sort of romantic connection, but like kind of like a luster. I don't know if anybody read that. And it reminds me a little bit of that, like there's a potential threesome situation. Like, I don't know what's happening here with all of this sensuality, but I think it needs to go somewhere early on if that's going to be a main theme. Yeah. And just speaking to the opening scene sort of being too long, uh, I spoke on Twitter this week about how during the drafting phase, you throwing as many words at the page as you possibly can to up your word count. And then later when you're busy revising, you're trying to remove as many words from the page as possible as you are busy polishing. So this kind of thing is fine in drafting phase, but by the time you're sending it out to agents, you want it to be as polished as possible, meaning every single word on the page is fighting to be there and it has to be there because if you take it out, you're going to be losing something. Okay, Cece, would you like to read the next query letter for us? Dear Cecilia, Carly, and Bianca, I am looking for representation for my 75,000 word literary novel, Treasures Lost. Since submitting a query to PS Literary in November 2020, I have revised my manuscript to increase reader engagement, and I believe it is now a much stronger novel. Cecilia, I understand you enjoy reading about dysfunctional families, and I am hoping Treasures Lost is a healing story to you. The year is 1969. Cecilia's large Catholic family has been continually upending itself, moving from one home to another five moves in the last three years. This latest move is the last, Cecilia's parents promise. Before Cecilia's family, the ground cannot be steady because they move their troubles with them. Cecilia's falling deeper into the world of her mental illness, and Cecilia needs to grow up fast, although she is only 13 years old. Luckily, Cecilia is able to confide in her friend Phoebe, but is her Australian pen pal really who she seems to be? When Cecilia's world starts to unravel, she discovers that hiding her own secrets is not only a survival mechanism, but a source of power and a way to move forward towards her own truth and reality. Told retrospectively by the adult Cecilia looking back on her adolescence, Treasures Lost pays homage to the bonds of love that unite a family in adversity and illustrates how our past is worth remembering as it shapes our future. Think of Treasures Lost as a mix between the intimate picture of an unusual life offered by Tara Westover's memoir, Educated, and the retrospective novel of childhood loss and family secrets as offered in Christine Higdon's novel, Very Marrow of Our Bones. Treasures Lost is somewhat autobiographical. My mother also suffered from mental illness. I moved with my family 15 before I was 18 and attended nine Catholic elementary schools. A recently retired high school English teacher, I completed the Humber School of Writers Creative Writing Program and have participated in many writing workshops and am a member of the local writing group in my community of Aurora, Ontario. I also love to write letters. Treasures Lost is my first novel. Below, please find the first five pages of my novel for consideration. Thank you for your time, and I look forward to hearing from you. Sincerely, Catherine. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Carly, why don't you let us know your thoughts on that? 
this one, I liked that we started with the year is 1969. I always love a timestamp as we always talk about, but I also wanted to know where we were. I didn't really get a sense of the region. Like, are you moving around the city? Are you moving around the country? Are you moving around the province or the state? Like, I just didn't really get a sense of that because it's much more dramatic. I think the bigger the moves you're making. And then we reference the Australian pen pal. And if I don't know where you are, I just maybe know that you're not in Australia, you know? So really, I just have no concept of, of where this person is at all. And if this Australian pen pal is so far away, what is the point of this, of this Australian pen pal to the plot? I'm not really clear on that. So I think I just need to understand what's going on in terms of geography here. And I'm also trying to figure out exactly what the hook is. I'm not finding it especially clear. So we have a line here that says, when Cecilia's world starts to unravel, she discovers that hiding her own secrets um, is not only a survival mechanism, but a source of power and a way to move forward towards her own truth and reality. That is a very vague sentence. I think the hook is buried in there. I think this is probably where the hook is. And I want to know how does her world unravel and what does the pen pal have to do with it? And what does the moving have to do with it? I'm just trying to figure out exactly what's happening. It's not that any of this is bad. It's just vague, right? We just don't actually have a sense of what's going on. And then in the next paragraph, there's a bit more understanding of what the structure is. So told retrospectively by the adult character looking back on her adolescence. A lot more vagueness again, you know, the bonds of love that unite a family and adversity and illustrates how our past is worth remembering as it shapes our future. I think that's fine to keep there, but that means you just need to make that description paragraph much, much more clear. I would combine a few sentences in this paragraph. I would combine the uh, the first sentence with the last sentence because you have your comps in the last sentence. So an intimate picture of unusual life offered by Tara Westover's educated. And I think you can just pop that up in that sentence just above it, right? You don't need like two sentences talking about the exact same things just to include the prompt. I think you can weave that in a little bit. So I would shorten that whole paragraph. But I thought the author bio paragraph was really good. So it's really just, I, I just want to know a bit more of what's going on here. Um, nothing bad about it. I'm just a little unclear. Carly, thanks. Cece? So I agree with everything Carly said. I was nodding along as, as she was giving her analysis on this query letter. Shout out to the protagonist having the same name as me. That was fun. Whenever, I think this might be actually the, the biggest challenge with with writing query letters, it's the plot paragraph, right? Like it's the hardest thing to do because you're trying to condense your story um, in a way that incites readers' curiosity, but still informs us what the story is about. So that can be a really tricky balance. And I understand that. That being said, this isn't working as is because it's fake. I don't understand what the story is about. I understand the character moves. I understand that her mom has mental illness. I understand that there might be something more to her friend Phoebe in Australia. And I love the line about how hiding her secrets is a source of power, but I don't get how these things come together and I don't get what they mean. And I have to get what they mean. I'm supposed to finish reading this paragraph and go, oh my gosh, I have to read to find out if... And then the end of that sentence needs to be something really specific, not just something like, will Cecilia survive or will Cecilia heal? That is too vague and too all-encompassing. And it needs to be something really, really specific. I love that the author is drawing from personal experience. I love her impressive writing credentials. I would ask her if I were chatting with her, like, either this has no plot and I don't buy that, or you're worried about spoilers. So you're not giving me the information that you have to give me and keeping me at arm's length. And don't worry. I mean, definitely, I don't want to know the reveal, but give us more, like give us more specificity because we're excited to find out. We're excited to go on a journey with your protagonist, especially me, because I have the same name as she does. So yeah. So thank you for sending us this query letter. Thanks. Kali, what did you think of the pages? So we start off 
for the prologue and then we move into chapter one, which is a post-church scene with everybody in the car kind of rambling through the countryside and they land at a house. So that's kind of where we are for the listeners. So the prologue, I would cut the prologue. I feel like I sound like a broken record. One of these days, you guys are going to, someone's going to submit a prologue and we're going to be like, yes, this is the right prologue. But for today, this one is not a right prologue. It did actually happen once. I think once on the podcast, we all said this is a great prologue. So see, we we do occasionally say so. Exactly. But that just speaks to the odds, right? It was like one and I don't even know how many of these sessions we've done. I haven't been on for all 50 episodes, but yeah, a number of episodes. So yeah, so this is a prologue I would just cut. It's just slightly forgettable. I think that you're trying to kind of frame the scene a little bit and set up the fact that this is someone looking back, but I just didn't really feel like it was long enough to do that job. And yeah, I just, it was very all in the character's head as opposed to like being grounded in a scene looking back, right? Those are two different things. So it just felt a little bit too up in the air. I didn't really feel connected to it at all. So I would think that would go. So right under the word chapter one, it has a song title. And I think it's trying to just kind of say like, hey, you know, if we were listening to music in this chapter, like this would be the song we would be listening to. And I noticed that you don't have any song lyrics, which is great because we start to get into a big IP issue with permissions and paying for songs and lyrics and things like that. So the fact that you just say like, if you know, this is the song you could listen to, I think that's fine. Just know that you can't do anything more than that, or you're going to get into some some legal issues and just having to pay money for the permissions, which is a hassle. Okay, now we're getting into the scene of driving in the car. We're doing a very like, here is the weather. I would probably cut any of the references to, there was a line called spring had arrived. I would just strike through that. There's a line that says a warm Southern wind made April feel like July and the harshness of the long Ontario winter we just come through seem unbelievable. And then spring had arrived. So strike through spring had arrived, right? Just don't double down on stuff like that. Just commit to the one way of saying it. I really liked this line. I pried the last remnant of Holy Communion from the roof of my mouth and stared at the sticky white blob, contemplating if flicking it out the car window was considered a sin. I thought that was so good and very like that's probably exactly what a character at that age or a kid at that age would be doing with communion i just felt just so connected to that character in that moment i am not catholic but i can imagine being a kid being catholic that's exactly how it would feel so one of the, my main issues with this whole scene is that we are learning about everybody else we're talking about the parents and the mom and dad and the siblings and how everybody else is in that scene and we're not learning anything about our protagonist we're talking about the sibling with the bony butt you know trying to sit on the other sibling and what what somebody else smells like the brother smells like BO and a stink between chicken soup and smelly sock, right? We're learning about everybody else. And we're not really learning anything about this character, which felt very distant to me and very observing, which is common for literary fiction. But I just really wanted, I, that's why I just loved that, you know, look in the communion, <laughs> like wafer out of your mouth. I just thought that was great because it was an insight into what that character was going through. And yeah, and then they kind of, they pull up to a house and it's a beautiful farm with acres and acres of land. And it just seems really beautiful. So it's a very picturesque scene, but I really want to know how this character feels about this. How do you feel about moving again? More just about this this particular character and less probably about all the other siblings. But I can see the reference to the memoir Educated in this sense, but Educated is very, 
very dramatic and it's a very hard comp because number one, it's a multi-million copy bestseller at this point. I mean, it's so much larger than life. It's a pretty hard comp to compare to unless your life is literally that dramatic. And based on the vagueness of the query letter, I'm, I don't know if it, if it comps to that. If it does, that's great, but it could be a bit of an ambitious comp. But yeah, I, I would, I mean, I know this is semi-autobiographical and there's obviously some hard stuff that this character went through, this author went through. And so I'm sensitive to that, but you know, this is a book and we're trying to make a product that somebody wants to sell to a publisher and that other people want to buy. So we really have to focus on the drama, which is why Educated did so well, because it is dramatic. Okay, Cece, why don't you tell us what you think? I agree with Carly. Let's cut the prologue. For the listener, yes, we are often telling you to cut prologues, but there's a reason for that. A prologue's job is to make us feel curious. This prologue is 115 words. That is very short. That's fine. But it did not make me feel curious. All it did was establish that Cecilia is telling the story in a looking back way. Like she's older and she is telling the story of her as a kid. So we don't we don't need a prologue for that. I think this is the description is beautiful. The wording is carefully chosen. I can tell that the author put in a lot of work and I appreciate all that. I do think that right now it's missing a level of emotionality that is essential to a story like this. I also did not quite... One of the things about Educated that works so well is that um, Tara captured the evolving consciousness of a child. And right now, the protagonist, she seems removed from the scene. She seems hidden almost, um, and she seems way too mature. I'll give you examples. So there's a part where, because Carly has described the plot already, right? Like they, they all go into a house and the mom has these feelings of like, this is the house where we're meant to be in. And it felt random. They just saw a for sale house and a uh, for sale sign and walked in. There's a part where the protagonist says, and this is narration, this is in her head. We were on a roll, had lived in five houses in the last three years. Why not six? And what a backyard. The for sale sign read 23 and a half acres. And though I had no idea how big an acre was, the gleaming emerald corduroy looked like it stretched straight to the horizon. Kids have very strong feelings about moving. They either love it or they hate it and they make everything about themselves. I mean this in the best way possible, as they should. Children should be thinking about themselves. They think, oh my gosh, I'm going to move to this house and this house has fewer rooms, so I'm going to have to share a room. Or if they already share a room, maybe they're looking to see if this house has more rooms. Or they are looking to see if the neighbor neighbors have bikes outside, which would indicate that other children live there because they might want to make friends. Or they might be thinking about how far away this is from their best friend's house. And the character is not doing this. The protagonist is not doing this. The protagonist is observing everyone else and is not thinking about themselves. And they should be thinking about themselves as well. And even if this is a parentified child who is incredibly hyper alert to her surroundings and her parents, and it might be the query letter to indicate that, then let me tell you what she'd be doing. She would be decoding what is not being said. So for example, the mom and the dad are talking and she's observing and she's reporting the dialogue. Mom's voice was wistful, but we could manage. I know we could because the dad is trying to tell her, no, this house is a money pit. It's not a good idea. And the mom is sort of like insisting, but in a wistful way. This child, if she is a parentified child, she would likely be observing and telling us, the reader, my mom did this. My mom got this faraway look in her eyes and she always won. Like I knew my dad would cave to my mom or the opposite, or my mom would do this, but my father never listened to her. Um, kids are sensitive to power, even if they can't say this is power. They know which parent usually gets their way by playing which cards. So I think that would be my big note for you. I would beware of the hidden protagonist 
and add emotionality in a way that would capture the evolving consciousness of a child. That Cece, I know you used to be a lawyer and now you're a kick-ass agent and a kick-ass writer, but I think you've really missed your calling in psychology. I will just park that there. <laughs> your insights into human nature always astounds me. Okay, so I'm going to read our third query letter. Dear agent, because you are interested in work from disabled writers and that center family and friendships, I believe you'd be interested in my literary women's fiction novel, We Are the Lucky Ones. Rory has dissociative identity disorder and each of her identities take turns wrestling the storytelling from one another in uh, three faces of Eve meets the Fisher King cacophony of voices. They fight over how to handle female friendships, losing love young and suddenly, life on present day Seattle streets and whether to recreate the cohesion they had once reveled in or to attempt to cross paths with whatever is responsible for the recent scourge of homeless female deaths. Despite hard-won solidarity with herself, Team Rory still feels hollow in ways only relationships with people outside of her psyche can fill. The more free-spirited Rory's begins to experience burnout at a high-powered engineering job the rest of her has wanted for years, threatening the team's uneasy internal equilibrium. Then her husband suddenly dies, turbocharging the cracks spidering through her mind. One of Rory's pissiest personalities, adamant that Team Rory cannot handle another relational loss, cuts her off from her friends and vows to protect the whole team from the connections most of the other Rory's want, whatever the cost. The cost is not just Team Rory's lifelong fear of becoming homeless coming true. Now that unhoused women are turning up dead at an increasing rate, that cost may be her life. She must get on her feet or become the next victim. But not all of herself are trustworthy. Some even want to meet the predator. Readers who enjoyed The Eighth Girl by Maxine Mei-Fung Chung or The Girls by Emma Klein would connect with We Are the Lucky Ones, complete and professionally edited at 110,000 words. A former case manager in a crisis center with clients experiencing dissociative identity disorder and a current MSW student at the University of Washington in Seattle I'm also a frequent contributor to the mental health blog, Mad in America, as well as Seattle Street newspaper, Real Change. Thank you for your time, Megan. Okay, Cece, would you like to tell us what you think of the query letter? Yes, let's let's do this. So dissociative identity disorder is, I don't know if this is going to sound respectful, and I mean it very respectfully, but it's an interesting disorder. I feel like, you know, pop culture has, uh, whether they've done it right or wrong, I I can't say, but they have, we've covered this theme a lot. And it's something that people are typically drawn to because they're curious about it. So there is that curiosity angle in, in the overarching theme, I guess. The way that this query letter is written, though, it's felt to me a bit confusing. There are small things that are easy fixes. So for example, in the first paragraph, I would very much recommend capitalizing or italicizing if you prefer. I prefer capitalizing titles or else when I ha- I'll have to read it twice because I don't know what's a title and what's a word. And also, again, in the first paragraph, there's a line that says they fight over how to handle. And then there are things like female friendship, losing love young and suddenly life on Seattle streets in, in, in the cohesion of their paths and then like murders unhoused female unhoused residents females deaths and I'm like what sorry it's I had to read it again because we're talking about like vague thematic things female friendship 
which is fine for the first paragraph. The second paragraph needs to get specific. But then it's like murders. And I just got confused. I don't understand how these things come together. And in the second paragraph, that's the one that I think needs a lot of work. And I, I have a note for the pages that I won't get ahead of myself. But I think that might help with, with writing the query letter if you if it resonates with you. But I was just like, is Team Rory the name of all the personalities? And now I think it is, but it took me a while to get that. And as you were describing each Rorist, it was like the more free-spirited Rorys or the pissiest Rorys. And it's like, I was just super confused. I, I One thing to keep in mind, and this isn't fair, but it is reality, is that agents will read this and they will be really tired because we, we read queries in batches. So clarity is non-negotiable. I think that the, the plot paragraph needs to be rewritten. And I will just say this now, I'll anticipate my, my big note. Each of these personalities needs a different name. You know, let's not call it the free-spirited Roris or the leader Roris or like give each person a name. If they are all different personalities, they each get a name. That's that's what I would say. It would really go a long way into adding clarity. Kali, what did you think? So with the title, We Are the Lucky Ones. There was a book that came out a couple years ago that was a New York Times bestseller called We Were the Lucky Ones. So I definitely think this needs a title change or else, you know, the first thing I thought of was the, this book and it only came out a couple years ago and is very popular. So I just don't think this title will work. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just, it's kind of already been done. That's all. And I know there's a lot of very duplicate titles out there but I think as a debut author you probably want to make sure that you're you know standing out and being as unique as possible so another title is best I agree with Cece I feel like we kind of have to address like both the query and the book as a whole kind of in this section so to me the hook of the book is the plot and to me it's the deaths of these homeless and houseless uh, females to me that's the hook right that's the book that's the plot this has momentum internal fighting whether it's with yourself and your multiple personalities or you know your personal journey like that's internal right so I think the external plot is this homeless death situation and that's great right that's the hook right there and then what Cece was saying about making sure all of the Rory personalities have their own name or nickname is essential is absolutely essential because there's no way that anybody can follow along especially in the early days with this um, if we're just not clear on who's speaking and so that said again I'm getting ahead of myself here but I think this book needs to be written as a multi-POV book because all of these identities are unique identities even though it's in the same body and so I think this could be fascinating fascinating novel if you tackle the plot as just figuring out what's going on with the houseless women and these deaths from the multi-POV of these three identities and which character like which identity remembers what and which identity sees what anyway I think this could be a very interesting book but at this point I just kind of can't see the forest through the trees right now but that's my advice it's kind of a whole restructuring of your entire concept <laughs> but that's what I think awesome Kali do you want to dive into those opening pages as I was kind of discussing in the query letter I think all of this has to be addressed together so the pages themselves are pretty confusing to me and also so I find that's very difficult to assess because it's written in first person and there's not really another way to do this other than write it in first person. But when three, it's it's like having three characters talking at you at the same time. It's just, you cannot know what's going on. And that's why I think we really need a multi-POV structure. And so e 
each identity has the opportunity to speak to us. So we get to know this identity. Just throwing three people at us talking all at the same time is just chaos. And I think obviously that's the theme of this book and deciphering this mental health and conveying this in a commercial novel type of situation. I mean, I know this is a literary novel, but in a commercial environment, in a publishing environment, we're trying to make this entertaining. And so we just cannot have the cacophony as an entry point into this book. So that's really my my main analysis here. I mean, I just found that I couldn't ease my way into this because I just wasn't clear on who was speaking at any given time and, and what the writer was trying to make sure that the agent or the reader understood about this book. So really, my, my big thing is just separate POVs for the separate identities and use those three POVs to move us along in terms of discovering what the plot is. But you can be creative in these three point of views and you know experiment with these identities and, and be literary, but we have to move a plot along. So I was just having a really hard time making my way through this one. Just on that, you know, remember that when you're separating POVs, it doesn't have to be one chapter per POV. You know, I don't know um, if any of you have read the book, The Department of Speculation. That was written in these tiny little chunks of like scenes. You know, there'd be like a paragraph and then a scene break and then another paragraph that was a totally different scene. So in one chapter, you can have all of the different personalities speaking and then you just separate them with that hashtag in the middle of the page to show that a scene break is happening. Okay, Cece, let's go to you now. I agree with Carly's assessment of this. I mean, first of all, yes, make this a multi-POV novel. You know, give each each character, and yes, each of her identities is a character, um, a name and put that name at the start of each chapter that's going to you know, and on whose POV we're going to be in. This is essential. We really, really need this here. You have a high risk, high reward, ambitious novel. And that's great. Keep that. Use this great hook that, you know, will inspire curiosity, will make people want to read more, will make people want to go on the journey with these various characters, various personalities of Rory. But it's important to do that with clarity because readers have the attention span of moths, and so they need you to um, be clear when conveying ambitious themes or, or elements of a book. The language here is particularly confusing. And I understand why. It's not because, you know, you can't write. It's because I am not used to reading books like this. But this is something that you as the writer should take into consideration. Maybe you'll listen to me talking about this and you'll go, I don't care. This is how I want my novel to be. I appreciate the feedback, but no. And that is totally fine. You decide what you do with your book. But what I'm sharing that happened to me as a reader when I read things like, would all of me miss my spouse if I... My my blanketed our stomach or no pattern I or any other Rory could see. This felt the, the use of the we and the hour, it it didn't work for me. It was incredibly confusing. I didn't know who was speaking and because it felt like it was a little bit of each of the personalities. And the, I, I I think it's confusing. So that's my that's you know, I, I very much agree with Carly. That is the big note here. And as well, all of all of these pages. Essentially, what we were dealing with was the dissociative identity disorder. We had a lot of information on Dr. Johnson, the therapist. We had a lot of information on what DID even is. We had a lot of information on, you know, would they integrate, would they not, how this affected their lives. At times, it felt very info dumpy. There's specifically a paragraph that starts with, technically, none of us, including her, knew exactly how old. 
according to Dr. Johnson, sometimes the splits don't have a specific age, and then it goes on to it's a, it's a longer paragraph. It's just it feels like you're trying to establish dissociative identity disorder. This is how it affects us, and I don't want each personality focusing on the others or on the team. I want each personality focusing on their own world. Otherwise, it could read itself indulgent or or info dumpy, and you don't want that. So let's say one personality is called Sam. Okay, so Sam is going to be talking about her specific fears, her goals, her dreams, her wishes. She's going to be talking to her friends, her enemies, discussing her annoyances, her pet peeves, whatever. Right. Like and if another personality is called Zoe, Zoe's going to have all of that of her own. And sure, they're going to be connected by the same body and they might even be aware of what's going on in terms of like there is more than one identity living inside this body. But they're going to be focused on themselves. And they should be focused on themselves because that will make sure that this book, that the plot moves forward in a digestible way for the reader. Otherwise, it's confusing. And perhaps you're thinking, yes, but it's a big book and it's going to be confusing. And that's okay. If that if this is how you want your book to be, and I don't mean confusing, I mean told in this specific way, and you're fine with the risk, go for it. But personally, I think that you can honor the ambition in this. You can honor the great hook and still keep it clear. So that is my note. Thanks, Cece. For everybody who submitted, thanks so much for trusting us with your work. We love reading it and we are grateful to have this opportunity to discuss it with you. So thank you for that. We will be announcing kind of at the end of September when we'll be opening up again for submissions for those of you who are wanting to submit. So listen out for that. And now we'll move on to today's guest. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronunciating words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. 
Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest is a journalist and mother of four. She also owns and operates a small organic farm. A tin house, bread loaf and Grub Street novel incubator alum, she's a member of the Climate Fiction Writers League and a frequent speaker on the topic Fiction in the Age of Climate Crisis. She's the winner of the William Faulkner Literary Competition, the Writers League of Texas Award and a Writers Digest Contest among others. Waiting for the Night Song is a thriller about fierce female friendship, secrets, and betrayal set against the backdrop of a quietly changing climate in a small New England farm town. Her second novel, The Last Beekeeper, is forthcoming. It's my pleasure to welcome Julie Carrick Dalton. Julie, welcome to the show. It's so lovely to get to chat to you today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, so let us dive in. Something that we are going to discuss today is how if you submit your work to an agent too early, if it's not 100% polished, if it isn't ready, you'll get a no and the door to that agent pretty much slams shut, which means you can't query them again and probably you won't be able to query anybody else in that agency as well. But the big problem is that a lot of writers don't know when their work is query ready and they're not sure of all the different things that they can do ahead of it to make sure that their work is as polished, as polished as it can possibly be before sending it out. So let's chat about all the things you you did before you started query. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm still fresh out of the query trenches. My first book just came out in January. So this is all still very fresh to me. So when I was writing my book, like most writers, I started out writing by myself. I was alone and I didn't have a lot of feedback. I didn't know anything about the process. So I sought out a community first um, of other writers. I took some classes. And as I was, you know, hearing from other, you know, hearing, reading about agents, and I came across this, you know, this information I didn't understand, like you had said, that if you query too soon, the door slams shut, not just for that moment, but for any future queries to, for that same manuscript. So I was thinking deeply about like, what can I do to know? how do you know when you're ready? So I have this theory of throwing all the spaghetti at the wall and knowing some of it is going to stick. 
So I started this, like this mission to get feedback on my novel. And I entered a lot of contests. There's a ton of ways you can enter contests. And some of the things I want to talk about do cost money, but some of them don't. And I think it's really important for people listening to know that you don't have to spend a lot of money. So um, there's so many genre categories for contests. So I'm not going to rattle off a ton of names of contests because I don't think that's, you know, they won't all be relevant for everybody, but any writer who's wants to do this, you can Google, you know, Writers Digest and poets and writers carry lists of contests for writers. But what you do is you find the contests that are relevant and you enter them and a lot of them, the prizes are feedback or you can pay an extra $10 and the agent or the editor will give you feedback. And that is the, the gold. That's the getting the feedback. So I started showing up at these literary idol events. I don't know if you've, have you ever seen those in person? No, luckily this is not something I had to go through. So this is all new for me. So explain it to us yeah. as, as if none of us know this. Yeah. So literary idol aid, um, events are where a literary agents will get on a stage. Sometimes they're doing them virtually now and they will read the first page of a book anonymously. So you submit the first page of your novel and they will read it out loud and they will read it as if they, it was in their query box and they will buzz you the way they do on liter, you know, American Idol or any of these you know, shows. It's brutal. They give you honest feedback because they don't know who they're talking to. So you're in the audience and you know it's your work, but no one else does. So they don't hold back. And it's not for the thin skin, but it is so incredibly valuable to hear people talk about your work in a way that you know, they're, they're judging you. And that's what a literary agent is going to do. So seeking out all these ways to get feedback, to enter contests, there are a lot of charity auctions that happen all the time, all year round, where a lot of people in the publishing industry will get together. There was several of them for, you know, different disasters for hurricane relief or for, you know, in relief for immigrants on the border in the U.S., that they will offer critiques and you can find it a writer or an agent or an editor who's really relevant to your work and bid on their manuscript critique. And sometimes they're $20, sometimes they're $250. You just need to know what your limit is. And then you get actual feedback from a professional and they're not turning you away. So they can tell you, you're, this is not ready. This is not good. Here's what you need to do. But they're not closing the door. And that's the key is to find these ways to get your work in front of people who will give you professional industry feedback, but that you're not slamming any doors. And the best ways are contests, auctions, um, literary idol events, and workshops that are run by agents and editors that will give you feedback. I know, have you ever heard of a, an organization called Manuscript Academy? Do you know about yes. this? Yes. So one of our agents is affiliated with Manuscript Academy, but tell us more about that for, for the listeners who don't know what that involves. Yeah. So Manuscript Academy is a, it's a wonderful and it's very unique, I think, that they offer opportunities for writers to pay. I don't know the amount right now. When I did it, I believe I paid $40 and I got 15 minutes maybe with an agent or an editor that I chose. And I got to pick the time I wanted to talk with them on the phone or by Skype. And you, they will read what, you know, whatever their designated thing they're offering, whether it's a query letter or a page or a synopsis, they will read it thoroughly and have notes for you. And then you can talk to them and you're not pitching them. You're not, you know, you're not there to query them. You're there to get their input. And they'll give you this just raw, honest feedback because, you know, you paid money to be with them and you get their feedback and it helps you. So you keep accumulating all of this data. This is what I did. I had this year of relentlessly, aggressively fee getting feedback. And I honed all my, you know, my writing until as I kept doing this, 
the feedback kept getting better until I, I did an auction with an author. Her name was Katie Moretti. She's a thriller writer because I write a th- I write thrillers. And I did the auction and she sent me back the pages and she said, you know what? I can't help you. I can't, I can't, I feel bad taking your money. You are ready to query. And that's when I knew because I had gone through so many layers, but what I had not done is burned any bridges. I had not queried my dream agent and missed my opportunity. So when I was ready to send out those queries, I felt, I felt very confident that this was the right moment. And what did you focus on during that time, Julie? Were you just kind of focusing on opening chapters, just getting those first chapters or the first 50 pages really polished or every time you had one of these opportunities where you're using it to workshop something different, uh, you know, in the work, what was the most important to you? Um, The first chapters are the most important. So depending what the opportunity was, if it's a contest, they're usually like 10 pages or 20, usually not much more than that. Not many contests are for a full manuscript. But um, I would really work on those skills. But what I would do is if, if someone would comment on a particular you know, idiosyncrasy I had in my writing, I would take those notes and apply it to my manuscript, even though they hadn't read the whole manuscript. If they were commenting on, you know, my use of too many, you know, adverbs or something like that, I would take that information and try to look at the rest of my manuscript with that in mind. So it really was the opening pages and my query letter. And they, um, during the, these consults that I uh, participated in, I got, you know, ideas for my comp titles. I had a, a manuscript academy meeting with an editor was said, who are your agents that you're querying? And I told her some names and she's like, ah, there's an agent I think you should query. She And I wrote her name down. And that is my agent now that it was recommended to me by an editor who thought it would be a good fit for me. So the, uh, I do think we should talk about money though, because I think it's really important because I feel, you know, I was in a privileged position to be able to take some classes and some of these contests can cost $10. They could cost $30 to enter. And you, you know, there, there's a limit to how much money you're going to pay, right. but many of them are free. And the ones that are not free, you can request waivers. You can, they, a lot of times they reserve spaces for um, writers who can't afford them. There's a contest um, that I was a runner up for the Caledonia Novel Award. And that really helped me in that a special in a moment in my career that really kind of changed the course of where I was going. And I've been so grateful to them that every year since I have paid for an entry for another writer to enter because I feel like I was fortunate to have access to, it was, I think it was maybe $30 to enter. I can't quite remember, but that can be a lot of money. So I think that it's important to understand your own budget but not feel limited to ask for scholarships. Manuscript Academy occasionally opens up um, slots for um, for writers who can't afford to pay for them. And there's lots of Twitter contests. There's, you know, the Pit Mad and Pitch Wars contests that um, are really valuable. You can make great connections with agents, editors, and other critique partners. And I think that's such a valuable thing that so many people are so quick to jump into the queries and just to send the queries out. And then when they get the rejections, it's too late to go back and ask for a second chance. Yeah. I mean, I made this mistake with, with when I was querying and I was just really lucky that my agent at that time fell in love with the story and saw the potential and was prepared to represent me, even though the novel was far from from perfect, etc. But like you say, most times, you know, that isn't going to happen. So how much time did you spend drafting the novel initially? And then how much time did you spend in this polishing and revising phase? It's hard to, it's hard to break that down. It took me 13 years to write my book, but I also had four small children at the time. And I built a farm from scratch during that same time. So it wasn't 13 dedicated years of writing, but I would say, 
I spent about three years really seriously working on my book um, at the end. And the, the, with the revision was more than the, took more than the writing, like the writing of the first draft and the second draft wasn't the hardest part for me. I spent a lot of time really polishing and I, I got feedback from other writers. Um, you know, I found critique partners and took workshops and I put um, a lot of effort into knowing that when I sent the book out, I was sending out my best possible work, is best the best possible work I could create, uh, produce on my own, that I felt confident in whether the book was good enough that other, you know, not every agent wanted it, but I knew at that moment it was the best I could do on my own. Um, so I think that there's, it's, it's, it's hard to not be impatient when you've worked so long on a book to want to send it out. But I think that last step's maybe the most important one of the really taking your time to make sure it's ready. Yeah. And what you said about just taking the kind of feedback you get from 10 pages and then applying that to the rest of your work is again, so important because I can tell just by looking at someone's work as a creative writing instructor, where they're going wrong. And those 10 pages will generally show me that. So like, like you said, whether you're using two or three adjectives, whether you are using blah verbs that then require adverbs to qualify them, whether you are doing a lot of exposition as opposed to, you know, immersing us in scene and in terms of dramatization, some writers just don't trust themselves enough. And so they'll develop this kind of tick whereby they will use their dialogue tags to say the exact thing that has just been said in dialogue. So they'll use an M dash to show that one of their characters has been interrupted. And then they'll say he interrupted. And that's redundancy because that M dash does the work of showing the redundancy, or they will have somebody say something that is very clearly angry. And then they'll say, he said, angrily, you know, so it's those kinds of ticks that you are not just applying to 10 pages of your work, you're doing it throughout the manuscript. What were examples of things that were pointed out to you that you were able to go through the whole document and improve or fix? Uh, that's some, and you're, I think you're, you're very correct in that we don't see our own ticks. So it's so that's another reason it's so important to get the feedback. One of the ones I remember the most with mine is that I use of hands and fingers in my work. I constantly was referring to people's hands and fingers, like doing things or touching things, or just so I had a, on one of these um, editors said, I think you should do a, a, a you know, just a, a word check and how many times you use the word finger or hand in your manuscript, and you're going to be really shocked. And I had no idea that for whatever reason, and it's and as it, I talk with my hands, and I think that's what it is. So um, it's those little things, and I I think I oh, I often would explain something two different ways. I would I have a sentence explaining it and then another sentence explaining it in the exact same way. And I didn't know I did that either. So having those things pointed out to me helped me cut my word count down too a lot and made it a much you know tighter language, which was, it's important to have somebody that can see it with fresh eyes. Yeah. And that saying something one way and then saying it again, that is lack of confidence. It's just not trusting yourself as a writer to have the skill to be conveying something to your readers. And of course, that makes sense when you are not yet published, you're not yet sure how good your writing is. And so you'll you know, tend to belabor a point rather than not make it, etc. So, and when someone says to you, you know what, your dialogue is doing the heavy lifting, you have made this point earlier, and so you don't need to do this, then you start to gain more 
confidence because then you're going, okay, all right. So this is something that I'm doing because I don't trust myself. I'm going to start trusting myself. And like you say, it leads to so many words being cut because time and again, we have people pitching to us, you know, their opening pages, their query letters, and their novels are on the way too long side. They're over a hundred thousand words. And you know, that's great. If you're a Claire Lombardo, Claire, if you're listening, <laughs> keep writing these very long novels. I love them. But for the rest of us, we can't really get away with that. And so many writers go, oh, I've, I've tried to cut it down as much as possible. But honestly, you can always cut it down more, like you say, once you start picking up on those kinds of things. And if you're using three adjectives for each noun, that's a hell of a lot of adjectives that you're going to be taking out just there. That's already cutting your, your sentence length down a lot. Yeah. And I also found that in the feedback, the, and the other side of it is they're not always telling you negative things that you, when you, they can, might identify how, you know, how like I write, I have a lot of sensory description. I write about nature a lot. Nature is a very strong character in some ways in my writing and having the, um, the reinforcement of saying you, you do this so well, you know, the way you describe, um, you know, texture is, is really wonderful. And it really moves your story made me know that this, this works for me so that I trusted myself to do more of that and to, um, you know, pare back the things that were around it. And also, as soon as you know, you know, the things you're good at, you lean into them. But once you know that there's things that you aren't necessarily good at, you know to spend more time on those things. You know to finesse them more than something else. Uh, and sometimes the things that you think you're bad at, you're actually not bad at. So I always thought that I was terrible at description and so I wouldn't write it. And I was lucky enough, it's my first novel that my editor said, you know, setting needs to become character, add another 10 thousand words just describing the setting. And I was like, oh, I'm not good at that. But actually I was good at it once I sat down and focused on it. It's just not something I ever focused on. So that's another great thing to have somebody point those kinds of things out to you. Yeah. Cause I think that we, we like you said in the beginning, you know, as a new writer, you you never know what is working for other people. All of it came out of your mind. So at some point you thought all of it was good. And so having somebody just, you know, guide you is um is the most important step, just finding people, finding readers, whether they're beta readers or professionals, workshops, all of it is so important. And the kind of courses that you were signing up for, were they with like continuing study schools? Were they with authors? What kind of courses were you doing along the way? So I applied to this a program. It's, I, I live in Boston and there's an organization called Grub Street, which is a large not, writer's nonprofit. And they have a program called the Novel Incubator. And I didn't really know much about it. Someone had mentioned it to me and I had this full manuscript and they have, they have a lot of applications every year. You send in your entire full manuscript and every year they pick 10 writers and you stay together for a year and you workshop each other's manuscripts for a year. So you have these other nine classmates that are giving you feedback all year on the same manuscript. And that for me made me a writer that made me become, I became an author. I was always a writer, but I became an author when I took that class because I could see that in their writing, because I think that's another thing that improves your own writing is helping other writers because you can often see 
the um, you know quirks and ticks in someone else's writing you don't see in your own. And then sometimes you can reflect it back to yourself. So that class really changed everything for me. I also have gone to a few writers conferences, you know, here and there and taken a couple online workshops through Writers Digest University. So sometimes has some workshops and there's a, something online called Lit Reactor that offers workshops and you can find very specific things like uh, a like a two-week class just on setting, or you can find a workshop with uh, a lot of agents and editors who author things through Writer's Digest that you can do a, like a, I think they call them like the first 10 pages boot camp or something where that they focus very closely and you get feedback one-on-one with the, the instructor. So there's a lot of variety. It depends on what your needs are. If you have basic craft skills that you need like real, the real basics there that's available to online. And there's so much of it out there now, especially now that there's so much more on zoom. Yeah. Well, that's just opened everything up for everyone. In terms of the magazines, you said writers and poets was, you said that was particularly helpful to you. Yeah. They, they carry a lot of lists of contests in them that they refresh frequently. But I also think, I mean, this sounds so easy, but Google is where you can find, that's where I found almost all the writing contests. I, I, um, I write, my, my writing could fall into the category of thriller. It could be a suspense novel. It could be a contemporary novel. It could be, um, it could be considered women's fiction by some people or climate fiction. So I would Google all those categories and say literary contest, thrillers, literary contest, suspense, literary contest, first novel. And it's incredible how many contests there are out there. And, um, and just always be aware that some of them are going to cost a lot of money and some of them are going to be free. But even the ones that cost money, just you can always ask. They can say no, but you, I think that people will be surprised. So I just hate for people to feel that it's prohibitive because there isn't you know, an investment, but there's a lot of scholarships out there. Amazing. Okay, so let's talk about your fiction in terms of climate fiction. Tell us what you think constitutes climate fiction and why you think it's so important these days. Well, thank you for that. That's my favorite thing to talk about. So I consider climate fiction to be a, a work of fiction, whether it's you know, or poetry or screen, um, uh, you know, plays, novels that engage climate science in a meaningful way in the story, that it's not just there for decoration in the background, that it's, you know, engaging the science and engaging the crisis in the plot of the story. And I think it's really important right now because I think that, well, if you think about picking up a novel and dedicating, you know, 10 hours of your life to reading a novel is an enormous act of empathy because you are putting your worldview aside to see the world through somebody else's eyes. And, you know, I as the writer and you as a writer, we get to craft the lens that people see the world through. And so in my book, I invite people into my stories as a suspense novel takes place in New Hampshire. And it's about a a friendship between two women and there's secrets and betrayal and, you know, redemption, but it's all set up against the backdrop of a slowly changing climate in a small town in New Hampshire. So the climate elements aren't in the forefront of the novel. The relationship is, the story and the characters are. So I think people come to my book for a story, for a plot, for characters, things they can relate to, care about. They do not pick up my book because they think, I would like to learn about climate change today. That, you know, that's not what fiction is for. But when people engage with your work, they can care. And once you like get someone to care and empathize, sometimes people think differently about things. And I think it's an opportunity because I'll give you a really great example is that I had a reviewer uh, who wrote a review of my book and it started out 
I, I, I was bracing myself for a really bad review because it started out saying, I am not interested in climate change. I don't even pay attention to the news. So I was just like, okay, this is not going to go well. And then they said, but I really liked the story. I loved the characters. And because I cared what happened to the characters, by the end of the story, I found that I think differently about climate change. And I think that is why climate change matters because, you know, it can be a thriller like my book. There are romance novels that are engaging climate science. There's a wonderful book called Shipped, which is a rom-com that came out in January that engages really meaningful conversations about climate responsibility. There are dystopian novels, a lot of YA novels coming out that are really, you know, bringing it. And, and there's a lot of diverse voices. We're seeing some fantastic um, especially in Hawaii, but in, I think in all categories, there's a lot of um, Black writers, Indigenous writers, um, Latinx writers, and just there's so many voices that are, because in a lot of cases, these are the communities that are feeling the effects of climate change first and worst. And I think that's why they're bringing some of the most exciting stories out. So if you look at the I don't have any scientific data to back this up, but I think if you look at the voices writing climate fiction right now, I think it's, it seems to me to be um, a broader diversity of writers and voices entering the space because it's it's an imminent thing in people's lives. And so for me, I'm telling a story about people and a community. And the, the backdrop of my story is that the temperature in New Hampshire has gone up four degrees, which is actually a real number. Our summer temperatures have gone up four degrees and it changes everything in this small town, but slowly. It's not a disaster story. And so people can enter that story and feel comfortable. It's a world they recognize. It's not a disaster novel. And they can change slowly and understand things as the characters do. So for me, it's an opportunity to talk to people who don't want to watch a documentary or don't going to watch, you know, read a book about climate science. Yeah. And you know what, that for our listeners, that applies to anything that you feel passionately about in terms of themes in your novel. Like nobody picks up my books because they say, oh, I want to see a white person coming to grips with their own racism. Nobody does that. But the background of my novels are apartheid South Africa. It looks at the ways that, you know, white people are brainwashed in these societies to be racist and the kind of unpacking that is then required. And for me, the most gratifying thing is when people email me afterwards and say, I was never aware of this thing that was happening. I went and researched it. I was furious about it. It was so upsetting. And I've now sought out other kinds of stories about this kind of thing. And I'm educating myself. And I'm sure for you, Julia, it's the same. When people, you know, that this is not why they came to your story, but it was in the backdrop. Your characters cared about it. So they care about it. And so, you know, it may lead them to do research and do thinking on things that they might otherwise never have given a second thought to. Yeah. And I think you're right. It does. It applies to so many different things. And for me, um, I also I'm a novelist, but I'm also a farmer. I own and operate an organic farm. And a lot of the, the, the things in my book were inspired by phenomenon I was observing on my farm. And so I was able to bring things that mattered truly to me, just the way you were ex explaining that it mattered to you, bring that into my story in a really authentic way, because it was, it was my experience of, um, of witnessing the world and, and writing, you know, writing about these things that mattered to me. So I agree. But in the end, it's always about the plot and the characters, because if you can't get people to turn the page and read the end of the book, whatever your important message in the book was, it's not going to get anywhere if they don't fall in love with the story first. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I often say to my creative writing students, when they start writing a story, I say to them, why are you qualified to write the story? And I don't mean where is your MFA or whatever the case may be is. I just mean, what is your life experience? What is it about you that makes you the per perfect person 
to write the story. And like for you, for example, you have your farm. I live in downtown Toronto. Everything I eat comes from the local grocery store in terms of, you know, I go there and I get it or I get it from the St. Lawrence market, the organic market here in Toronto. But I don't live on a farm. So I don't see how these things are being, you know, how they affect farming and how the way you see it, which means you are so perfectly qualified to tell the story because you have like this eyewitness account of these things that are happening that the rest of us are not even aware of because we don't live your day-to-day existence. Yeah. And that is the beauty of fiction is it gives you the opportunity to live someone else's life for a little bit and, and experience things that from the perspective that you don't normally in your, in your day-to-day life. And I think once you, and when you sink into a novel, you're not just hearing a story from someone or watching the news, you're letting yourself emotionally get involved with these people. And, and those they sink in almost like memories in some ways that they become a part of you, like their story becomes a part of you and you see the rest of the world a little bit differently because of it. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's so funny because so many people will say, oh, but my life isn't interesting. When I say, why are you qualified to tell the story? Like, what is the story you are most qualified to tell? People will go, oh, I'm not a doctor or I'm not a detective or whatever the case may be is. But, you know, here it is. Farming is something that makes you qualified to tell an amazing story about shared life experience, just kind of focusing on a theme that, you know, the rest of us may not be able to focus on. So for the listeners out there, always come back to your life, always come back to the things that you are passionate about. And I say that time and again, it takes so many years to write something. Julie just said how long it took her to write her novel. If it's not something she was passionate about, she would have given up on it long ago. So passion goes a long way in terms of, you know, encouraging you and motivating you to to keep dealing with the rejection or whatever it may be. And, you know, putting that your bum in the chair, people bum in the chair. Uh, Julie, what comps did you use for this novel when it went out uh, on submission to agents? It actually changed from when I went from agents to editors, which is an interesting story. I submitted to agents using um, Barbara Kingsolver's Flight Behavior and uh, Jane Harper's The Dry. And I think we used Megan Miranda's All the Girls Missing. Those were the three that I sent out to agents. So it was a bit of a thriller. It had some, um, you know, literary qualities and a lot of nature. But my, um, the one, so I got the agent. And then when we went out to editors, they wanted different comp titles. And I would have so, thought where the crawdads sing or no. That's, that's what that exactly There what we go. That's exactly what we did. So we, um, crawdads had just come out. I had not read it. It was not the book at the time. I had never heard of this book. And they said that we want some, you know, more nat- like heavier nature. Cause my book is very steeped in the mountains and lakes and forests of New Hampshire. So they wanted that like more visceral nature in your face nature. And so I went into my local bookstore and I, I was, I was like panicked. And I said, you know, I said to the bookseller, can you help me? This is what my book is about. And this is what I'm writing. And she's like, Oh, I have the perfect book. And she picked up where the crawdads sing. And I bought it. I went home, I devoured it. And it's been the comp title we've used ever since we still use it. And in fact, Bookbub um, just sent out a, one of their email blasts last week saying, if your book club loved Where the Crawdads Sing, you should read Waiting for the Night Song. And I was thrilled with that. And I got it was a, a, a good day for me sales wise because people recognize that title. People rec- 
recognize that title so much and people love that title. It is a book that people, you know, absolutely love. And the cover of the book as well, you know, that when before I even read what the story was about, because I'm a huge Delia Owens fan. I've edit I've interviewed her editor for the podcast. I uh, love that book. And I had it next to me and I was like, oh, these type these these covers are kind of reminiscent. And that's amazing because you know that's what you want. You want someone who who walks into a bookstore who loved one book to look at another book and be like, oh, this might be similar. And that's a perfect comfort. I, I started reading the book last night only. I meant to start reading it ages ago and it's just been crazy. Uh, and I'm already, already loving it, Julie. So oh, thank you. Yeah. I, I, and now that it's out there and getting to talk to people about it is such a treat having been on the other side of it for such a long time and to be out there and, you know, know that people have the book and are reading that is exciting. And I, and I do have a second book coming out, which is also in this climate fiction category in early 2023, a book called the last beekeeper. I also am a beekeeper. And so it's going to engage a lot of the sensory details and um, you know, smells and vibrations you get from um, keeping honeybees. That sounds amazing. Amazing. Thanks so much for taking the time, Julia. It was wonderful chatting with you. Thank you. This has been so much fun. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. 
We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.